welcome back to the Value Adds Value podcast with Kyle Krieger and Wilkie Law, where we're sharing inspiring stories of educators just like yourself, helping you to develop your craft and sharpen your tools to become the teacher your students deserve. This is the Value Adds Value podcast. Let's jump into this next episode. going on everybody kyle here welcome back to value adds value thanks for checking out this episode um episode 279 man fast approaching that 300 mark but we appreciate you listening and all the support um this year we hope you're having a great end to 2020 we know it's not been the greatest year ever but that's a big part of what this podcast has been about um wilkie and i had a conversation at the end of last week um because i i just had a lot going on in my head about this year and being grateful, but not being too grateful to make other people feel bad because I know a lot of people have had a rough year and it just kind of stemmed into this um, conversation about perspective. So this is the first half of it. We'll drop the uh, the second half next week, but it just kind of got to be a conversation about how we should feel about this year, the things we've learned. And it really is just the start of our reflection on the end of the year. So thanks for checking out value adds value. You can find us uh, on Instagram at value adds value. Um, at its.will.law.iii. You can find me at its Kyle Krieger, or you can visit our website, theledproject.com. So thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy this episode. Yeah, man, it was really, it was really nice. I went for, after I got done talking to you, I went for a run outside and it was really nice to get some vitamin D and just be outside, man. Good, man. It was um, it was good getting up last night before the sun went down. Yeah. So you're yeah. doing you're doing home whatever homework club after school. On Wednesdays and Thursdays, I do a tutoring. So Wednesday, I do a virtual tutoring, where um, you know, I wait until five, and when the students get home, they log in. You know, they have the link Google Meets, and we sit in there and we. You know, right now I'm just covering three different things in each one. So everybody's getting the exact same thing. Cause those are like the kind of the big ticket items. Right. But like Wednesday night, I only had one kid show up. So I made her, I was like, look, you tell me what you want to work on. And then Thursday, it was kind of fun because I had, th- I, had I had three kids. But while I was teaching, literally all three kids got it. Like, you can see the light bulbs coming on at different times because you can teach, even though it's like, you know, we can, we, I'm not going to say complain, but, you know, last year when we had class sizes of 30, 32, sometimes 36, um, it was, it was, a, it was wonderful going down to teach, you know, anywhere between 12 to 19 kids now. And then to be able to do tutorials where you only have three kids. And you can really have those conversations with each one of those kids in a way that it's really more personalized. You just forget how great it is to teach and that type, you know, to do those small group sessions. Because even in a regular class, you can't really do those small group sessions just like that because, because of social distancing. You know what I mean? Word. And with mask on, you, I mean, you're almost talking at, at about an eight every time you open your mouth just to be heard. Yeah. You know, yeah, so I was 
it's kind of similar to what I was doing with my eighth graders, um, you know, because we just came back from Thanksgiving, but this was the last week of our trimester. And I'm like, well, I gave you your, your trimester test before we went to Thanksgiving. So let's just kind of scale back and get back to some stuff. And I had them do an activity of, you know, what would you do with 10 extra hours a week? Just to get them thinking about the positives of what this situation is. And, and I just really am trying myself to get into that position again, to remind myself that there's good that comes from this this situation and we were talking with abby and becca last night because you know they both got married you know they got married this year too and it's so easy to to look at 2020 as just a dumpster fire of a year but i mean if i try to look at it man i've spent a ton of time with family um i you know i didn't get to spend as much time with friends as i wanted but I spent a ton of time with family. Brittany and I bought and moved into a house. We got married. So like to me, 2020 was a pretty, pretty good year. And it's strange to me to feel, do you ever feel weird when you're, when you talk good about something that everybody thinks is terrible? Yeah. Like, I almost at times don't want to talk about how great I think this year has been because so many people have had a difficult time. Well, you know, let me give you some perspective and that's what it's about. It's about perspective. Um, you know, when, when, when I remember when I was at Stellick and some certain teachers would always kind of be like, you can't be this excited on Monday. You, know, you can't be this excited on Mondays. You know, that's when we were in the ET mode, where it's like, you know, you, I woke up every morning listening to ET. And when you get an ET in your ear every day, yeah, you I better, mean, you better get moving. Right. And so I remember when people would say, it's Monday. And I would take, tell them, I'm like, if your perspective is to work till Friday, I say, Friday just lasts one day. Friday is just one day. And then if you're only working for Friday, then that means Saturday and Sunday is going to suck for you because you're thinking, you thinking, oh my God, I can't wait until I get to Friday. But when you wake up every single day just excited to be alive and you are operating in a thing that you love to do, when I wake up and get ready to go to work, I'm like, time to make the donuts, you know? <clears throat> so it's all about perspective. Same way with 2020, you know, and I, you know, the analogy I always use, you know, pardon my, pardon my, my vernacular on this one, but even if you say there's a lot of shit that goes on, there's a lot of shit going on. Watch this shit. When it sits for a long time, become fertilizer. Fertilizers helps, helps things. Fertilizers help things grow. It enriches them. So call it what you call it what it is. Was 2020 a horrible year? We can say across the board for in, in, in our time span of human existence for you and I, this is the worst year probably on record that we could probably imagine. However, in the midst of all of this, there have been some moments where human humanity has shown through. Uh, there's been times where 
where, where justice has been served. There's been time when, when dreams have come to fruition, even in the midst of all the turmoil. So it's all about the perspective. So I wouldn't feel bad about celebrating something that to me and for me is bad. But I do understand that just because it was great for me, there were others who, who did not capitalize on opportunities to make themselves better. You know, who maybe waddled in a little bit of self-pity to try to get, you know, people to join the pity party to feel sorry for them instead of saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to use this as an excuse. I'm going to find a way to get around it. You know, talking to one of my students, her mom lost her job. Um, and well, actually, she's not one of my students. She's a student at the school. She was just talking to me in my in my morning room about I my mom lost her job and then she started her own business. You know, and now her mom's doing better now in her own business during quarantine than she was doing before working a job. Right. And I so it, it, I, you know perspective. At- and I look at also to the the things you learned this year, if you paid attention, the things you saw this year. I mean, because there's a couple of perspectives. I mean, really, the perspective of the situation when it comes to people of color and police. You know, you saw you saw it full frontal you saw the pain that it causes people. You know, for me, even to when you talk about small businesses, like how many, how much you learn about what it takes to actually run a small business and, and how difficult the thing that I, that always strikes me too with this is how difficult it is on even just a city, you know, if you're talking Houston, a city level or a state level to make choices that you know are going to negatively impact someone. Like when governor, you know, mayors and governors are closing down indoor restaurants or closing down gyms, they know it's going to negatively impact those people. And still, you know, they make that choice for what we hope is the greater good of, of people. And it's, it's a situation where there's a guy I know that went to my high school that he, you know, he's been posting a lot on Facebook about how it's unfair to close gyms because they, they provide a service that is good for people. And I'm like sitting here reading some of the stuff he posts and, and, and like to some degree it makes sense. Like one of the best ways, and you've talked about this, is to combat your potential getting of the virus or if you got it, not getting it bad, is to be living a healthy life mm-hmm. prior to getting it. You know, and, and I think that's just really the situation for me is that I'm learning about so many things that I wouldn't have otherwise learned about. And we were talking with Abby and Becca last night about just the general landscape of social media. I mean, cause Abby along with Brittany are, you know, we're both kind of talking about just getting rid of social media in general. I mean, because they feel like they're at a position where it doesn't bring anything positive into their life. And, and I get it. And one of them asked, you know, like, when do you think it's going to change? And, and my point was, 
it's going to change when people realize that everything is on camera now. And people who forever were able to get away with anything and everything because no one actually knew that it was happening or, you know, in the case of like the way police treat people of color, a person like myself would have never believed it because that had never been my experience. I had very minimal experiences with police officers, starting with police officers in my hometown who I, who knew who I was and I knew who they were and they knew who my parents were. So a couple of times I got, I mean, like I grew up in a small town where one of my really good friends stepdad was a police officer and he would randomly like just drive behind me with the lights on. And then he would pull me over and not stop and then drive by and wave just so he knew it was him. But I mean, it really takes me back to a couple of years ago when you were telling me the story of what your mom taught you about the police and how many times you said as a kid growing up, you just sat on a curb and waited for the, I never had to feel that. I never had to live that experience. And I think, the main thing that I'm, I mean, besides like the great things that have happened to me, like we're seeing so many more people's experience now this year than we ever have before. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, <clears throat> I think it was Will Smith who said, it's not new. This situation with the police isn't new. It's just being recorded now. Um. You know, police brutality has been plaguing the community since the Black Codes, you know, over-policing Black communities. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that in any type of behavioral training that takes place, how you handle a thing is how it teaches it the responses that are appropriate. And when you do that, over generation after generation after generation, it becomes an ingrained, um, it becomes a, just, just it becomes instinctual. You know what I mean? Like, you don't, if you see the cops' lights come on in your back, you know, your first thing you're wondering is, okay, what did I do? What happened? When I see the cops' lights, I get sweaty palms wondering, is he having a bad day? Am I gonna make it home? Yeah, you know, and 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 that—that's really a form of terrorism. It's a form of terrorism that that creates this post-traumatic stress that gets passed on from generation to generation. Because now I have to teach my child how to cope with this. Yeah, and and it's crazy, and I, like I'm not trying to make light for the cops or for you or to undermine your thing but just think of like how much anxiety there is on both sides because of like you said that ingrained mentality because I do I am a believer that there are a lot of great police officers around the country who want nothing more than to protect people and help their community I 100% agree you know my one of my closest friends from college is is a Dallas police officer, um, and 
I have nothing but respect for officers. Again, like I tell people, never once did I want to think about the idea of saying defund the police. You know, to me, that's just like saying defund education. You're going to take money away from an already broken system. That makes zero sense. That makes zero sense. That just means that we need to zero in and you need to have a, a true lens of what you are in the community. Because you can look at it through your own lens and through your colleagues' lens, and your lens is going to be the same. Versus when you look at it through your colleagues' lens, your lens, plus the lens of the people that you serve. Because you've got to put their perspective into your sight so that you can see this is how and this is why. You know, and it goes both ways. You know, I believe that 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 as as a people, as a people, black people here in America, uh, we need to start changing our mindset on how we do things. You know what I mean? It, it you know, even now today in, in, in classes, you hear students say things like, um, uh, what was it the other day that we were talking about? And um, God, I just lost my train of thought. Mm. <sighs> students talking about how the color of their skin makes a difference in how, how good they look. How the way you talk determines whether or not you really are black or not. Um, <clears throat> that even today, there's still a such thing as, oh, you talk white. You know what I mean? Like, because I, I know how to put together a sentence and because I understand, you know, how to, that, that means I'm talking white and I'm not true to my blackness. But I also think that when you think about it, it's really the fault of, of mass media who kind of perpetuated what is supposed to be considered black. You know what I mean? And so this is what, our generation of children have grown up looking at as the image. So anything contradictory to that is, is not for them. Well, and even just studying history and reading some, you know, like the Ibram X Kindy books talking about, you know, what over our history, what white people have seen as the model black person, you know, and it's not just with the black culture. I mean, white, Americans have tried to assimilate everyone to be like them within our country. It comes back to that point of where, you know, we've talked in the past about how white Americans are the only ones that are just called Americans. You know, everybody else has a label. Yeah. Hispanic Americans and, and making that, that feel negative to say, Oh, you're well, you know, being well-spoken, um, I remember that that guy Emmanuel Alcho who has that internet show uncomfortable conversations with a black man he referenced it as people at his high school outside Dallas referred to him as an Oreo black on the outside white on the inside cuz he spoke so well and and it's just that situation where coming back a little bit to policing like I I think every everyone needs a little bit better needs to be taught how to deal with a police because I know there are a lot of white kids and white people who are incredibly nonchalant with the police. 
but think about this. It, I hear what you're saying, but I think it needs to be the other way around too. Oh, 100%. I, and I think it's more the other side because again, you know, as an educator, you cannot control the, the, the 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 student population that you get in your classroom. Yeah. You're not at one bit responsible for, for making sure that you, um, I mean, in, in making sure who deciding who you have in your classroom. But right. when they come to your classroom, it is your sole responsibility to understand each one of them to make sure, number one, I'm not offending anyone. Number two, making sure I'm not mistreating anyone. Making sure that I'm giving everybody a fair shake. We just talked about it when we opened up. When we were in, the, in the beginning, I was telling you about how, you know, teachers don't realize how we have built up our own bias on certain students. You know, you should do a blind grading when you do things and not do the benefit of the doubt if you want it to be fair. Yeah. So the understanding, just like I'm asked to understand the students in my classroom, police have to truly understand the communities that they go into. You know what I mean? Understanding that a group of eight black boys sitting in, an, in, an, in, an, in a parking lot at an apartment complex having a conversation doesn't necessarily mean there's something nefarious going on. No more than it does eight white boys sitting in a parking lot in an apartment complex in the Midwest and thinking that there's absolutely nothing going on there because those are upstanding Americans. You know what I'm saying? And, and so we have to really, really, really get everyone at the same time at the same table having the same conversation and don't get up until we reach a a, a comfortable balance. That's the conversation that most of white America does not want to have. And, and, and when you have people who are, are, who are pushing agendas, you know, are, are following blindly a political party and they start to develop these thoughts, then my question to all of them is, do you consider the people on the other side? Because I know forever we... It was almost like ingrained in black people to to consistently think about the other side. Perfect example, when slaves were working for an owner, if their master got sick and didn't look good, they would say, Master, we's not feeling good today. Connecting yourself with them. So if master's not feeling well, then there's a response that should be triggered because we're not feeling well. That's just like your autoimmune system. We were, we were created to come to your aid, but when you consistently don't come to our aid and that's not reciprocated, now you have a generation now who are more visual, they have more access uh, to information, past, you know, present and future, than ever before in the history. You have a group of people who are tired of seeing the same thing, combined with a group of people who, who are tired of seeing that things hadn't changed. You know what I'm saying? And, and in a moment to where it's like, things are bubbling and boiling so much that the only way that you can do it is to turn the fire off. And the only way you can turn the fire off is to have a conversation. You've got to have conversations. And those conversations have to leave to actionable items 
that are not just rhetoric or political, you know, politically motivated, but they're they're designed for what is in the best interest of the people that I serve. Will you kit everybody? Absolutely not. But can I teach every single person to be considerate of every other person and to look at things through through multiple lenses versus your own? That's what our kids are doing. And they're doing it much more rapidly than the people who are in charge and in power. And that's where you're gonna have a problem. Yeah, and I just, for some reason, um, what came to mind, because we were talking a little bit, you know, about how we have some empathy for city and county and state level leaders because in this current pandemic situation, it's impossible to make decisions that are good for everyone. You are going to have to impact. You know, the example we used is, you know, around me, gyms are closed, you know, indoor dining is closed. And you look at like the service industry, especially of, you know, if you're someone who made part of your living or all of your living as a waiter or a bartender, like you've had a really rough go of it. But it made me think, you know, of your understanding or you're saying that we got to get to a place where we can start to understand the perspective of someone else. And that's really where this started was talking about what a great year it is. I don't want to go around bragging that I've had the greatest year ever because these things have really, for the most part, I've had, I've not had a ton of detrimental effects this year. But then when I watch this, parading it and, and, and putting it out there and, you know, is, is, is your right. Because think about it, everybody's not winning at the same time. Right. They're not. Now, you know, I guarantee you, if, if we would have had our house built before 2021, if we would have had our house built before this year end, even next year when we're moving into our house, it's going to be a celebration of the work that took place in 2020. You know what I mean? It's like you can't... It's not that you're being insensitive to other people. It's that you're 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 sharing the excitement with your life. And anybody who's worth their weight of anything should be able to celebrate with a friend despite what they're going through. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Like you yeah. you have to understand that even, you know, even in the midst of everything else. Your your story could be the hope for somebody else that, hey, look, everybody's not losing. That's the way I look at situations. And I also go back to the Bible, and the Bible says that God has no regard of person, meaning what he does for one, he'll do for the other. So if I see that God is blessing and moving other people in the midst of a pandemic right now, then I can look at my situation and say, maybe I'm not as bad off as others, but I know I'm still not where I want to be. So because God is blessing over here, there's no need for me not to step out on faith and trust that God's going to bless me over here. And then, bam, I walk into that manifestation. So, again, don't dim your light. The Bible says you don't light up. You don't you don't you don't turn on a lamp and put it underneath the table. No, you turn on a lamp and you put it on top of the table on top of the tallest hill. That's the Bible. 
So it's not just for the people in the house, the people that are closest to you, your friends, your family, to see your light. But no, he says, put it on the top of the table, on top of the hill, so that those who are even abroad who are going through can see, look, it's dark around us, but look, if we just keep going, there's a light up there on that hill. And that light is hope. Yeah. And and that kind of where I was coming back to with the conversation about social media is it and that you know, we've watched that documentary, The Social Dilemma, and you you've seen things and you know how kind of how it works, that it just the system that it is, it tends if you're looking for things that are negative, if you are, you know, in that negative mindset, it's really easy for that to bring you more negative. And for me, trying to bring bring the positive in this situation coming around with the kids, I mean, because I look at it and I mean, this has been one of the best years of my life. And, you know, I, I but I don't. And I think, like you said, there's a tactful way to be positive and to bring positivity without, you know, I can bring positivity about my own life without undermining or dismissing the fact that there are people around me who's had a really rough go of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of is where we're at, you know, when it comes to the conversation about race, too, is that. I can acknowledge that I've had a good life and part of it is because of the color of my skin. I don't have to be ashamed or embarrassed because I didn't choose I didn't choose to be white any more than you chose to be black. But that also does mean that now that I know I have to do my part to make a difference. And I think it's sort of like you always say about acknowledging the situation. We're never going to change anything until we acknowledge the reality of what the situation actually is. Right. 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 And I, and bringing that around to kind of the conversation we have yesterday, I've over this time, I've really started to question like, coming back to that question of what is the long-term end game for education in our country? Like, what are the outcomes? Because we're in this situation where we, most of us can't do the things that we would normally do in a normal year. Mm-hmm. And I think it brings me back to like asking the question of why are we doing things the way that we are? Why are we choosing to teach the things that we are teaching? It just, it's been on my mind a lot lately trying to figure out, you know, what's the big picture? What's the end game? You know, even sitting at a um, table full of academicians in, 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 in New Mexico that time yeah. at the university of New Mexico, we were sitting there with, you know, with, with these, you know, higher education educators, um, policymakers, you know, superintendents. And the question was asked, what is the end game? And that same kind of look like, because I think it's changed. The end game 
I think the end game has not changed. The methodology is trying to remain the same, even though the end game hasn't changed. And the end game is really to have a, an educated populace. I, I really gave this thought last night when you were, when, when we, when you, after you talked to me about it yesterday. Our, the end game has not changed. Education was created to make sure that you had, you know, you can look at it in some cases and say an indoctrinated po uh, populist who understands the country, who understands the norms, who understands the culture, who understands um, what, what do you do once you get this information. But the difference is that end game is the same. The strategy that we're trying to get people there is the same, but the people that we're leading are different. And we have not changed the story we're telling to be truly reflective of all of these individuals. You know, there's no reason for a kid in a public school to really not understand the atrocities of slavery, to understand the atrocity of, of, of um, uh, Hitler and, and, and the Nazis, you know, the Nazis and the Jews, Jews extermination. Uh, it's not, it's, it's, it's important for them to understand, you know, the missing children in Kenya and the Sudan, you know, it's important for them to understand the things that's going on in the Philippines and in Vietnam. It's important for them to understand all this because if I'm a kid and I identify with that, then I want to know that there's more about my culture than what's right here in front of me. I want to know that there's more about what makes me, because like you said, if you started to label everything the way it's supposed to be, the way you label, you know, your Latin Americans, you know, your Hispanic Americans, your Chinese American, your Japan Americans, your, you know, all of these different things. <clears throat> when you start looking at it, if every single one of those is represented in every single part and every, every single fabric of this country, then we would truly have a melting pot. You know what I'm saying? We would truly have a melting pot, melting pot, and it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be a need. And I know this is some people may hear this and get upset, but you wouldn't have a need for Black History Month because Black History will be taught as a per permanent part of the curriculum of what all American children get. Every American child needs to know what America has done to the people who's come here, who they brought here. Like that needs to be put out because again, that's the only only way you're gonna get to real solutions is to have real conversation. Well, and I, now, I go ahead. I, I think of it too like connecting and connecting that to how it's still having impact today. And I think about our Native American population. Our Native American population is one of the most underserved populations in our country. They have very, very high rates of alcoholism, of abuse, of ill health. And we took their land. I mean, I don't know how you can say it any other way because, you know, I, I will say maybe that we said we were going to compensate them for their land but that truly has never happened to the extent that it should even up here in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Right. And, you know, I think it's interesting that 
that story of the Native American. Those, those people that were here before is very rarely told in truth. You know, I just recently started going through um, some of the notes from Christopher Columbus's logs because he was very uh, meticulous about keeping logs about the people that he saw along his journeys and what his intentions were, who was his crew, like reading it from his own pen of what was going on. Um, it, it paints a light on the fact that, and, and I don't want to get too, you know, too far down the rabbit hole, but the desire for European dominance is really what you can really say that that was the, that that is the reason that it that that we are where we are right now, and it's that 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 sense of arrogant dominance over everyone, that subjugating of everyone that has made America what she is right now, and that's why we're so heated. You know, there's no reason in a country that that was that was formed by immigrants has some of the craziest views of those in individuals that are immigrants. You know what I mean? And, and again, some of us were, were, were immigrants, some of us were enslaved. And I'm not talking about enslaved in Africa. I'm talking about enslaved right here on, on American soil. Americans who were here, natives that were here before, they were enslaved, they were, they were subjugated. You know, and so again, man, it, it just, we have to start having real conversations. Um, and that's why I told you, you know, I, I, I tell anybody, I, I want to sit down with people who have opposing views of me. I want to have that open dialogue. You know, one of the teachers at the school, we kind of banter back and forth uh, on, 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 on issues and topics. Um, but again, I think that if you're not openly having those conversations, then there's absolutely no way you can expect any type of real change to take place. Everything is just gonna be surface level. I'm gonna give you what you need just to keep you quiet and get me out of my way. Now let me keep on building and growing and getting bigger than you. Once again, fam, thanks for checking out Value Adds Value. Um, this is the first half of a conversation we had uh, at the end of last week. Um, and we're just grateful. I mean, I think that's the word we would use for this year um we're grateful grateful for our health for our success for our jobs for our families and everything else that we've had we know that a lot of people have had a rough year and i know that we um as teachers are having a rough year but we're trying to bring positivity um something to look forward to and hope to this and we hope we don't we've done that with this podcast so tune in next week we're just going to have a conversation. We're going to put a few other things out this week, but we hope you have a great week. Uh, much love. We're out.